With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. When I was a struggling writer before I sold my first book, I got 190 rejection slips and I taped them to the walls. 190 rejection slips. 190. I have a rejection slip from everyone I've worked with since. Um, Taped to the walls like a serial killer. I would sit in the room. I would tape them. Literally, my wallpaper was rejection slips. Um, from everybody. Every What's the worst one? Like any handwritten one? I ones? mean, I remember the New Yorker used to send one out that was like a page that said no on it. <laughs> it was like just no. Um, you, I was rejected by a janitor at a publishing house because I sent a manuscript to an editor who was no longer working there and the manuscript ended up in the trash can and a janitor took it out of the trash and then read it and sent me a rejection letter. And I only go into the stories where it's larger than life or something incredible happens. So it's what leads up to that incredible moment, you know? Um, what leads up to Facebook being a billion-dollar company or what leads up, you know, to a guy suddenly believing in UFOs. And, and so it's all the chapters in the life that leads to that point. For me, it's just a matter of getting to that next story. And that's what I do, yeah. Ben Mesrick, author of, I have to say, Ben, I was looking through your book list and I was realizing that over the past five, six years, I've probably read all of your books. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> Thank so, you. Bringing Down the House, which became the movie 21, and of course, Accidental Billionaires, which became the huge movie, The Social Network, uh, Ugly Americans, Straight Flush, uh, the, the, I forget the title now, The Rise of the Oligarchs in Russia, right. and most recently, The 37th Parallel, all about uh, essentially UFOs. Right. So I want to talk about that book, but A, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. This is awesome. This yeah. is your second time on the podcast. Last time was for your, your novel, Q, right. uh, which was great, and we talked about that. This time, I want to talk about you put out like a book. It's, I feel like you put out a, a book and a movie every six or so months. <laughs> like, what do you, how do you, um, before we get into the whole UFO thing, how do you pick these topics and then write these books? It seems like you embed yourself into the lives of all these people and then you create what seem, what is almost written like a novel, but it's a nonfiction book. Right. So basically, I'm pitched things. That's that's how I find my stories is for the most part, people come to me. I get emails. I get phone calls, often from prison. But anytime someone does something crazy, I'll get some sort of a like message. Like what's an example of something crazy that you didn't do? Oh, there's been so many. I mean, I often get stories of somebody who's been in prison for 10 years um, for some scheme fixing horses or, you know, those are the kind of things that I don't follow up on. But I've also gotten calls, someone who said he knew where the Gardner Museum heist paintings were um and you you start to follow it and then you realize that these people are just completely crazy um so it, it runs the gamut i mean i had a guy who used to call me all the time from hong kong and he said i've got a story i've got a story if you just talk call me back um uh, that would be great and i kept ignoring him and he said tomorrow morning in your mailbox you'll find a check a cashier's check for fifty thousand dollars just call me back um, oh my god so i went downstairs and there was literally a cashier's check fifty thousand dollars so, and then, which is cash, basically. So I call this guy back, and he starts telling me how he's he's a drug, a cocaine dealer in Hong Kong 
who'd made all this money and then realized he's the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And that was the, his pitch to me. And then I was looking at this cashier's check. Like, oh, I can't take this money. <laughs> this guy's crazy. So you do get all these kind of but crazy things. wait, did things. you cash the check? No, I didn't even take his money. But then you also get, you know, Eduardo. I mean, that's how I got the social network is I was sitting at home in a random email, two in the morning, and a Harvard student saying, my best friend founded Facebook and no one's ever heard of him. And I went out to a drink with the guy and in walks Eduardo Saverin, you know, looking just like in the movie, and starts a conversation, uh, Mark Zuckerberg fucked me. <laughs> that was the beginning of his conversation. And I was like, okay, tell me more <laughs> about this. And that, you know, eventually became the social network. So you never know what pitch is going to come in, where it's going to go. So I do look at them, um, and every now and then there's something I want to write. Well, let, let's take it, that example. So obviously then you you interviewed Eduardo right. Saverin. You probably followed well, him Well, that story a got bit. a little crazy. So basically what happened is Eduardo, um, you know, starts to tell me this story. Uh, he's not supposed to be talking to me. He's in the midst of this massive lawsuit with Facebook. I found out after the fact the reason he was talking to me was to force Facebook to settle with him. They were mm -hmm. ignoring him. He wasn't on the mass set. It was as if he didn't exist. I thought this was an awesome story. I actually found the Winklevi twins, which are not hard to find. Um, they're they're great guys. They're huge. They became, you know, exactly. They're Hollywood. They, they're perfect. Six foot seven or whatever they are. Identical twin Olympic swimmers who are, you know, in their suits, matching suits all the time. Really great guys. And then um, I found Sean Parker, and Sean became my real inside source over there. I wrote up a, a 14-page book proposal, um, showed it to my agent, and... Uh, he sent it out to a couple people and it leaked onto the internet on Gawker, which no longer exists, but they printed my entire book proposal on Gawker. Uh -huh. um, and that day, everything went crazy. Uh, Facebook settled with Eduardo for what eventually became $5 billion. And in the settlement agreement, it says you may never speak to Ben Mesrick again because they were trying to stop me from writing the book. Eduardo cut off all contact with me. He um, sent me a legal restraining order. He broke up with his girlfriend because it was my wife's best friend at the time. And then he moved to Singapore never to be heard from again, which is understandable for $5 billion. I think most people I know would not speak to me again. Um, and then... Uh, and not only that, it set off a chain of events. Right. Like even... Mark Zuck right before the movie came out, Mark Zuckerberg donated a hundred million dollars right. to Newark schools. Right. Like you basically changed the world just I, from a book proposal. It was a crazy situation. Um and uh yeah, the movie really changed what Zuckerberg was seen as. I think it changed Facebook entirely and led to their IPO being what it was. Um I think uh that day also Aaron Sorkin called me. So he saw my book proposal online, said I want this to be my next movie. Um David Fincher saw it online and said, I want this to be my next movie. Um, which was all great, but I hadn't actually written the book yet. So that was sort of the beginning of the process where I scrambled to write a book very quickly because I have a big movie deal. Um, and, uh, and Was the movie deal bigger, bigger than the book deal? I mean, in terms of what? I, I, it's hard to say. So for me, if a book explodes and sells millions of copies, that's, that's you know, the bread and butter of my business. Um, but the movie deals are, are a big part of it now. I mean, I will say that every project I do, I have to have a movie before I'll even write the book. Mm -hmm. So if I can't sell a movie on a book, I won't even do it. Um, I've sold my last eight books as movies before I've sold the book. Um, because I just feel that there's a synergy there. That's that's where, you know, the best movies come from, and that's essentially um, how the book business kind of works now. It has to be attached to something but, bigger. But I, I feel like in order for that to happen, like there's a combination of a bunch of things. A, you're a good writer, so you, 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 you don't just kind of 
tell a nonfiction story, uh, fact after fact. You kind of create dialogue, you right. create story, you create tension, you create antagonists and protagonists, and it's the classic elements of a story, but you put it into a nonfiction context, right. like like the story of Facebook. And uh, at the same time, the story has to be big enough right. uh, that it's not just some kind of uh, true crime murder story in Phoenix, Arizona. It's, you know, it's big, Facebook, right, right. you know, which affects billions of people or, or the oligarchs, which affects all of Russia or, you know, 21, which is such a fascinating story. We all wish we could go play blackjack and make millions of dollars. Right. Um, so it seems like you have to really spend a lot of time thinking about uh, and also stumbling into these massive stories. Right, right. And that is, and it's, you know, it, it can be a challenge, but every story has to be big enough, right? It has to be something that everyone in the world would look at and say, okay, I'm interested in this. And usually these are sort of underground stories that haven't really been told before. Um, you know, stories of, of MIT kids beating Vegas. You know, it's the perfect Robin Hood um, kind of scenario, although they were keeping the money themselves. But the idea of going up against the evil casinos. And then Facebook is similar. It's, you know, a couple kids at Harvard who weren't good at meeting girls and then and, and they launched a revolution that changed the world. It's these stories that are big enough that everyone kind of understands them, but there's this Shakespearean drama at their core. Um, so, yes, there is somewhat of a formula to it. I need to find all of these elements. It has to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and, and that's, you know, it lends itself to the movies. I try and write nonfiction in a thriller-esque fashion in a way that, you know, it grips you. Well, what does that mean, a thriller-esque fashion? Well, like, I what, take, you what, know, what points do you have to hit in your story? Right. Well, I mean, I, I do all the research. I live with the characters. I become as much a part of the story as I can as I research it. Once I've got all of the information down, um, it's a matter of, of finding the dramatic points in the story. I mean, everything in life has a three-act system, um, not just books, but all life does. You know, our own lives do. We grow up, we reach different obstacles, we fall in love, we have that period in the middle where the obstacles get more and more, you know, challenging, and then something horrible happens and we go down to the end. And then everything has this three-act system. That's what Hollywood's all about. So in terms of, for instance, the Facebook story, you know, you have these two kids meeting, you have all of the obstacles they have, and, and they're building this company, it's getting bigger and bigger. Something tears them apart, and then you go towards the resolution. And you really want to find those big beat points in any true story, how you're going to craft your story. Now, listen, I mean, nonfiction, even though it's true, um, it follows these patterns. All life does. And so, so, it's so like, just what's an example of, of something that you haven't written about which follows that 3X structure that maybe you considered but didn't do, I but mean, follows that 3X structure? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. You know, I, I'm always looking into... There's lots of stories um, that are, are I haven't told either because they just didn't you know, work for me or, or it would have been hard for me to get inside. The other thing is I need a willing protagonist. I need someone who wants to tell me the story because I'm not one of those journalists who goes running around a story trying to overturn rocks, you know, to get inside. For the most part, people are coming to me to tell their stories. Um, but things that I haven't told, I mean, I don't know. I've always thought that that uh, Prince Harry would be a great story um, because, you know, he's the one who's not going to become king. He's the one who's doing all these crazy things and dealing with being a part of that family um, and yet can never really become who he's supposed to become. I think there's going to be a great story there, but he'll so, never tell it. So what's the three acts? Well, I mean, for him, I don't know the story well enough. I think I'd have to research it. That's the thing is I don't know the beats of a story until I get inside of it. Mm. I mean, I think all of our lives have, I mean, my, my own life would be one if I ever wrote a memoir. I mean, you look at, you know, where I, in my 20s, uh, I was $2 million in debt. I owed, I owed 
uh, so much money um, that I, I had an IRS agent who knew me by name who would show up at my apartment saying, you have to give us something. Um, and then I meet the MIT kids, you know, and I start going to Vegas with them every weekend. And it was just a chance happenstance thing through a friend um, from college. And the next thing I know, you know, uh, it, it get, leads to Kevin Spacey seeing the project. Um, and, uh, and then it becomes 20. I mean, there's a whole, you know, it's hard to get into it in, in, in a, in a short form, but how, how come you were $2 million in debt? So this is a, you know, this is a sad, stupid story, but I was 25 years old when I sold my first book. It was a novel that none of you, nobody in the world read. Um, but I was kind of the it writer. So I sold in one year, I sold four books, a TV movie, a project with the X-Files, um, and they give you these big checks and you're, you know, you're in your early twenties and, and they don't take money out of it. And I just, you know, I lived a, a, a lifestyle that was way beyond what I was getting. Um, you know, nothing bad. I never did any drugs. I never really drank. I never had any bad habits, but I spent, I would get up on a Wednesday, go to the airport, no bags and get a one-way ticket to Paris or, or London or New York. I lived at the Plaza for a month. I lived at the Standard West Hollywood when it opened for a month. And I spent, you know, $2 million uh, or more. Um, and then the year comes up, and suddenly you have this $800,000 tax bill. I was paying my rent with one credit card, paying another credit card. You know those checks were they you, give you? At this point, were you I like— I was one of those crazy, you know, like, like a sports star who gets their first big check and doesn't really think it through. And I thought, okay, my next book will be big. I'll, I can always sell another book. And this was the 90s where the book business was a very different business. Right. In the 90s, you know, I remember—this <laughs> sounds horrible, but I came up with the idea of a story. I wrote a long paragraph pitch— faxed it to my agent at the time who faxed it to a publisher and I had a half a million dollar deal before the end of the day. And this does not exist anymore. This is not how publishing works anymore for good reason. Um, and so you'd get these crazy checks and, and, and I didn't really think about it. And my fiction, nobody was buying it. Um, I wrote six novels, the, none of which anybody read. I had a TV movie starring Antonio Sabato Jr., Robert Wagner, that uh, I think was TBS's premiere movie, TNT's premiere movie. It was, you know, movie of the week kind of thing. Um, so and, did you fall into despair at any point where so you figured... I reached a point where, I mean, I was living off of a... Off of, I had one bank account. There were lens, 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 whatever that word is, on all my accounts. They've frozen everything because I owed all this money. I had one account for some reason that they couldn't find that I was able to live off of. Um, and I had a stack of business school applications. I was thinking the only way I'm ever going to get out of this debt is to go into business because there's no way I can do it with writing. And then there was a local bar, a friend of mine, this girl I went to school with who ended up being the Kate Bosworth character in 21, um, brought me into this bar to meet her friends, um, this group of MIT kids. And they had tons of money and it was all in $100 bills. And in Boston, you never see $100 bills. So you couldn't... Why is that? A, they just don't exist. <laughs> People don't pay in hundreds in Boston. Right. In New York, you, you see $100 yeah. bills, right? In Boston, you'll never see a $100 bill. Because people don't have that kind of money. There's not this finance community. Um, and I was like, why did these guys have just pay for everything with hundreds? I went over to the main character's house, Jeff, his, his real name is. And in his laundry was a quarter million dollars in stacks of hundreds. And, and, and it was the MIT Blackjack team. I started going to Vegas with them. And I was like, this is a great story. So I wrote up a book proposal and my agent said you know nobody cares about cards nobody cares about vegas this was before that's crazy um, though. all of that it was before moneymaker won the world series of i mean won um yeah the world series of poker so it was before cards were on tv really yeah. um vegas hadn't had its, its resurrection yet um so i i sold it for the lowest money i'd ever sold a book tiny money wasn't going to get me out of my hole i wrote an article for wired magazine um and uh, and i get a call 
uh, from Kevin Spacey. And he's like, I, I read this article. And I hung up on him. I was like, it's not really Kevin Spacey. I called my mom. I was like, Kevin Spacey's trying to call me. And she said, no, it's a prank call because the MIT kids used to prank call me all the time. But really it was Kevin. And uh, he, 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 you know, wanted to make a movie out of it. And then I booked the Today Show and everything kind of exploded. And it became sort of this, this, this you know, moment and, and everything kind of shifted in my life. Um, and got me out of the hole I dug myself. But it was fortuitous, you know? I learned a lot about business and that I'm not good at it. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I'm on CNBC all the time. I had a show, uh, uh, Filthy Rich Guide or whatever, and I'm always on and I'm saying, I'm the worst person to be on CNBC. Do not take any of my advice because I don't know how to, I mean... I think uh, everybody on CNBC <laughs> should, should probably admit to that. You're though. right, you're right. I mean, I'm just not good with that stuff. I'm I'm a writer and that's what I've always wanted to be and that's what I always should be. But wait, I still want to understand, so so two million in debt yeah. and you don't really know what the next thing is. Right. What what did you feel at that uh, lowest point? It was point? a desperate moment. I, I definitely had my own moments. I didn't tell my parents about it, obviously. And I come from, you know, I went to Harvard. I come from a, 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 a educated back with my brothers are doctors. My dad is a doctor. I was the one who said I wanted to be a writer, so I was kind of the black sheep of the family. Um, there's that moment where you're like, oh, man. But I've always been um, delusional, I think the word is. You know, my friend Scott Stossel, who runs the Atlantic Monthly, always says, you're that, you, you, there's two types of writers. There's the miserable sitting in a room, you know, always hating what you write writer. And then there's the one who always thinks everything he does is fantastic. And that's me. I've been <laughs> delusional since I've been, a, I've like, if, if I get a rejection, it's because the other person just doesn't get it. So even if at your lowest point, you always kind of had maybe this overly optimistic, incredibly delusion that, that the next thing will be that home run. I live that way. I mean, I'm always kind of in this fantasy world, I think it is, um, that, you know, I'm just one minute away from that next giant thing. But you that know? maybe keeps you writing and oh, writing yeah, and absolutely. writing, like, no it matter keeps, what. You know, listen, when I was a struggling writer before I sold my first book, I got 190 rejection slips and I had taped them to the 190 walls. 190 rejection 190. slips. 190. I have a rejection slip from everyone I've worked with since. Um, taped to the walls like a serial killer. I would sit in the room. Mm -hmm. I would tape them. Literally, my wallpaper was rejection slips um, from everybody. Every What's the worst publisher. one? Like any handwritten I ones? I mean, I remember the New Yorker used to send one out that was like a page that said no on it. <laughs> it was like just no. Um, you, I was rejected by a janitor at a publishing house because I sent a manuscript to an editor who is no longer working there and the manuscript ended up in the trash can and a janitor took it out of the trash and then read it and sent me a rejection letter. That's and so, so funny that, that he felt all, like enough... You felt the need to he, tell me that it was no good. <laughs> but it's funny that he had the confidence right, to right. say, well, maybe this is my break at the publishing company. I'll read this great <laughs> book. But he decided it wasn't good and he still rejected, rejected me. It was sad. So I reject. I have the stacks of them and, and they're really funny to look at now. But, you know, most of them are form letters, but some of them are very personal. <laughs> you know, you should probably do something else. You would get things like that or, you know, it's great to have a dream. And, and, and then, you know, harsh ones. Um, but you just for me that just powered me on i'm like okay they're all wrong uh everyone's wrong and uh and you know I, I every time a book came out and didn't do well i would say okay you know the next one and that's why i've never been a guy i never wanted to write a book i've wanted to write i've wanted to write a hundred books um and so each book i'm i'm well into the next book when a book comes out mm -hmm. um i'm on a a very sort of intense schedule but i always have been it's just for me it's just a matter of getting to that next story. And that's what I do, yeah. So, so okay, so let's take like any of these books. You you, you start, you, you get the story, you get all the interviews, you you follow these people around. Right. And then when do you start writing? Um, how, how do you start so writing? So I've got, you know, thousands of pages of info. I get court documents and you, there's tons. And most of the books I've written have some sort of 
court record to them, which is great. Um, Facebook story, you know, I managed to get all of the court documents, all of that kind of stuff. I, I guess a lot of them, like straight flush, the oligarchs, yeah. like there's all... All of them have some, police some sort of police involvement. <laughs> so you can get real information and you can check it against what people are telling you. But once I have all my information, um, I write an outline. Um, well, this is after the selling process. So usually I speak to the main character enough to get a book proposal. I sell the book as a movie and a book. Then I do all of that research, and then I write an outline. The outline is very specific. In fact, I know how many pages every chapter is. Mm. Um, so, and I'm always exa- exact. Um, so it's a little bit OCD-ish, but that's my outline is is as severe. It's like a skeleton, and it, it really is very severe. And I hate outlining. Everybody hates outlining. Um, but the reality is, for me anyways, that's the way it works. I find whenever I outline versus not outline, when you write afterwards, it's much faster. Much it's, faster. Like, yeah. it's like four or five X faster. Right. Oh, I, by far. And I think that everyone hates the outlining process, but that's the most important part of your book. Um, and once I have my outline, um, I start the writing. And the writing phase for me is really locked up in a room, loud music playing, in the dark, and it's writing. Um, you know, now I have little kids, so it's not the schedule I used to keep. When I was young, it was write all night kind of thing. Now I really write around the kids' lives. Um, and once I get into the heat of it, you know, I'm just writing as much as I can. I write by page and not by hour. So I say to myself, I have to write eight pages every day, for instance. Um, and no matter how long it takes, it might take an hour, it might take 10 hours. But that's that day. So so when you're doing the outlining, are you thinking in terms of the three-act structure? Are you thinking in terms mm-hmm. of... Oh, the outline is very structured. It, the, the outline, you know, I figure out what those points are in the three-act structure. Um, every chapter leads it. And in fact, the page numbers have to be accurate. You know, I try and hand in a book that's of similar length every time. And so I know where those act breaks are going to be. And it's interesting when you talk about that because we're talking about a true story. But the reality is all true stories fit within this structure. And, um, and again, that structure is... Um, there's well, there's it's hard obstacles, to say, but basically, there's ways of dealing. You know, the first hundred pages. Let's say, let's take a three hundred page book. The first hundred pages of it, you're introducing your characters. You may be introducing their love interests. You're introducing what they're trying to achieve, their goal, and you're starting off with the obstacles that to get there. At the end of page one hundred, something happens. Whatever it is, that thing makes it seem very difficult that they're going to achieve their goal. So, like, for instance, in... In In the Facebook story, um, I would say, uh, um, you know, I have to go back and remember what my outline was so long ago. Um, But the big points were, you know, the Winklevi um, uh, suing, for instance, or the Winklevi um, feeling like they were getting screwed. Um, um, And then you have that second part, essentially, where there's more and more obstacles, but they're getting through them and they're trying to get... And things are getting harder and harder and harder, and then something big happens in the Facebook story. Um, it might be um, uh, what was the big? I can't get to go back and remember this movie. Um, uh, <laughs> it was uh, the Sean Parker probably situation, or or when they decided um, Eduardo feels like he's getting thrown out of the company, hmm. um, and they have that big moment. Peter Thiel comes in, and they're you know they they and then the last hundred pages is the resolution. Whatever big happened at page 200 spurs you into the final 100 pages until your end. Um, so, you know, everything kind of follows it, and uh, it, it's interesting. But, you know, you have to delve into the story and find... When you're interviewing the people, I'm, lo- I'm thinking of their lives as chapters. Um, so when I'm interviewing a main character, you know, like an oligarch, for instance, I'm saying, well, w- tell me stories. And I'm going to interlock all of these stories in terms of the overall book. 
Um, but it's all that all all nonfiction story is. All our lives are are just interlocking stories. We shift from story to story to story, whether it be the story of us falling in love, whether it's the story of us getting sick, whether it's the story of us trying to get somewhere in our business and succeeding. These are just chapters in our lives, right? And each one of them has its own little structure to it. But I want the person I'm talking to to tell me all of these different stories in their lives so I can interlock their life together and then we have their life. But you know, it's interesting. I don't know what I, it's, I'm Did, getting a little, uh, you know. No, that is interesting because I wonder then if we view it that way that. Um, well, look, when you're on your deathbed and you're looking back on your life, you're going to just think of all these different chapters. You're going to think of all these different stories. You're not going to remember anything in between. You don't remember getting up and, you know, whatever you do in the morning and going to the bathroom and heading to work. None of that. All of that just disappears in a blink. All you're going to remember are these specific moments, right? There's an optimism to it as well because, like in all these stories, there's some resolution. One way or the other, there's some resolution Absolutely. to take you to where you are. Right. And I, and I only go into the stories where it's larger than life where something incredible happens. So it's what leads up to that incredible moment, you know? Um, what leads up to Facebook being a billion-dollar company or what leads up, you know, to a guy suddenly believing in UFOs. And, and so it's all the chapters in the life that leads to that point. So, okay, let's talk about UFOs. The 37th Parallel just came out. Great book. You. you. How did you find this guy? You basically, you, I don't know how to say his last name. Chuck. Chuck Zukowski. Zukowski. Yeah. Like, Chuck, Chuk- like Charles Bukowski is Chuck right. Zukowski. Zukowski. Yeah, it's an amazing story. So um, I didn't believe in UFOs. You know, my parents are scientists. I, I come from a... a did they make fun of you for like Oh, my following? dad was like, what are you writing about? And he was not pleased originally about the topic. Um you know, I've always thought it was crazy people in the Midwest seeing things in the sky, and it had no science to it. Um, I'd heard about this guy, Chuck Zukowski, through a Hollywood producer, guy who did the movie San Andreas, um, said, have you heard about this guy? Um, uh, and uh, Chuck Zukowski was a reserve sheriff's deputy in Colorado who was investigating a cattle mutilation, which is this very odd phenomenon that's been going on for 50 years, where over 10,000 cows and horses have been found lying on their left side missing organs, all of the cuts are circular and surgical, and the animals are completely drained of blood. Uh, There's no witnesses. There's never been anybody arrested. In the 70s, it got so bad that three state governors petitioned the Attorney General of the United States demanding an FBI investigation. The FBI investigated cattle mutilations using 100 agents over 10 years and found nothing. No one's been arrested. There's not a single piece of evidence of who's doing this. Anyways, Chuck Zukowski was a sheriff who, who believed in UFOs in his own life, um, was looking at this cattle mutilation and started to talk about UFOs. Got fired from the sheriff's department and became a ufologist. He became, got an RV, put his family in the back, and just starts going from UFO site to UFO site. So I thought this was going to be a story about this, you know, close encounters, this crazy guy who is obsessed, who's making, you know, pyramids out of mashed potatoes, who's really going down that rabbit hole. But as I followed Chuck around and I went out to Colorado and hung out with him and and got into this world, there's a lot of craziness to it, but there's also this kernel of reality to it that blew my mind. There are, there's data, there's evidence, there's a lot of really strange stuff that changed my perception of the whole UFO thing. What's the strangest (laughs) thing that, uh, well, I mean, strange is the wrong word. There is a ton of evidence, for instance, that in the 1940s, something was happening. It starts with the Foo Fighter phenomenon. And, you know, we know the band, the Foo Fighter, but the reality is the term comes from, in the 1940s, late 1940s, around 1945, um, American pilots and English pilots flying over the Rhine in Germany kept seeing these fireballs that would fly alongside their planes. When they turned their planes toward them, the fireballs would disappear, 
and then they would reappear and they'd be in formation. Um, it was such a phenomenon that the New York Times covered it uh, in the front page. What are these Foo Fighters? Big article, and I put the article in the book. Are they some weird German weapon? This article was carried everywhere. All of our intelligence services at the time got into it trying to figure out what it was. After the war, we captured these German scientists, and we asked them, what, what were these balls of light? And they had no idea. They had seen them too. The Japanese had seen them too. They were all over the place in the air, and nobody knew what they were. A short time later, we have Roswell. And it was within a, within a year, 1947. Oh, and wait, on the Foo Fighters, right. I mean, I, I... There was never any resolution to it. And still today, fireballs are seen by pilots. Mm. Um, they're called fireballs or they're called... There's different words for them. Um, there's but no, it couldn't be like an optic thing. Well, that from... was one thought was it is something they're seeing, but, you know, they tried to study it and nobody could figure out what it was. They thought it was psychological warfare of some sort, mm. but nobody copped to it. Nobody knew what it was. But it was really wide-reaching. I mean, it was most pilots were seeing these things. Mm. Um, and they were all over the place. Short time later, you know, you have Roswell. So Roswell, and it's very kitschy. It sounds like it's a joke because there's been so many TV shows about it. And you go dress up as an alien and have a hamburger in a saucer-shaped restaurant. But the reality of Roswell is that in 1947, our first nuclear base, it was an Air Force base where the planes that took off to bomb Japan were housed. Um, in, in, uh, called Walker Air Force Base. Um, they tracked something flying through a storm in the middle of the night in 1947. Whatever that thing was crashed on a ranch. It spread 300 yards of metallic debris all over the ranch. The debris was described as, as being metallic, soft material, covered in hieroglyphics. Really and, weird and Chuck writing. Zukowski even <clears throat> found some Yeah, later on, debris. Chuck does an archaeological dig and actually finds a piece of this. But anyways, in 1947, the rancher who, whose ranch is hit by this calls the local sheriff who calls the Air Force base. The Air Force sends out their, their men. They pick up the debris and they put out a press release saying, we have now in our possession a flying saucer. Hmm. Um, a few hours later, they rescind their press release. Uh, they gather up every ounce of that debris, and they have men in lines, you know, walking, picking up the ground as if it's like the most important thing in the world. They put it on a plane. They fly it first to Dallas, where they fake a photograph. They take a photograph of a radar operator sitting amidst the, the debris of a crashed uh, a weather balloon. And they say, we were wrong, it was a weather balloon. Now, everyone who was involved in that photo has since come forward and said that was a faked photo. The guy in the photo, the photographer, and the guy who ordered it have all said that was fake. But it doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't a weather balloon. doesn't mean anything, right. That debris is then carted to Area 51, where it sits today. <laughs> they don't release it. None of these files have ever been released on what it is. It's still called the unidentified debris in files that I've seen. Um, and for whatever reason... It's still there. I mean, we're talking 70 years later. Why wouldn't they open it up to scientists? Well, and... that's a great question. And, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton was recently on, uh, on Jimmy Kimmel, and she said if she became president, one of the first things she'd do is demand they open those files. Hillary was then asked, you know, do you believe that we've been visited? And she said, I wouldn't be surprised. And that's the person who was in the White House, who was our Secretary of State. If anyone was close to this information, it was Hillary Clinton. Hmm. Um, so if she's not going to be surprised by visitation, then I don't think anybody should be. But the question is, why won't they release this information? If it's a weather balloon, now it's 70 years later. It's not still experimental. It's not something that matters anymore. Just bring it out here. And, and there's been theories there any, about it. Isn't there any Freedom of Information Act kind of? They've tried. They've tried. Uh, it, Area 51 wasn't even, they didn't admit Area 51 existed until a few years ago, mm. even though everyone, of course, knew it existed. Um, so, no, they don't have to release that information, and they don't even give it to the president. 
So if the president can't get it, it's it's a matter of why, why. So, you know, there's been theories. One woman had a, a wonderful book, I think, called Area 51 a couple of years ago, where she said that her research told her it was a, the Russians made a flying saucer to attempt to scare America, purposefully crashed it, um, had it in the flying saucer were mutated children from a, a, an experiment to make us think we were being attacked by aliens. And did she have any evidence for this? She did. This she had files from Air Force people and, and interviews. Now, that theory seems odd to me, um, simply because why then is that still a secret? I mean, if that were the case, why does that have to be a secret? So, um, so just, but, just viewing it from you know, the idea that the simplest solution is probably the correct solution, right. what is the simplest solution? Well, here? I mean, that's a, a fair question. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. The simplest solution is that it was some sort of spy craft, that the, the U.S. government, the Air Force, was doing some sort of experiment that for whatever reason they don't want to admit to. Maybe they were experimenting with high-altitude pilots and they killed a pilot. Hmm. Maybe they did something, you know, you look at Tuskegee, you look at things that the Air Force has done or that the government has done, especially in the 40s and 50s. Um, and this was a time of, of, of interesting stuff going on, you know, the development of the atomic bomb, um, the Cold War, the Manhattan Project. And we were very secretive back then. We kept secrets. Um, so maybe it was part of that. And then all the people have since passed away and the secret just hasn't been opened up yet. Um, that's a possibility. And then you look into the UFO thing. Now, of course, we all want to say the UFO thing is the least likely thing. It's got to be impossible. But the impediments to believing in UFOs, I feel, are falling down. We used to think there wasn't life on other planets. Now we're pretty certain there's probably life out there just because of the number of planets there are, the number of Earth-like planets there are. We used to think that all of these planets are too far away. But now we know that's not true. We're finding Earth-like planets that aren't that far away. We can reach, you know, Proxima Centauri, which is the newest one we found, with current technology in 40 years. Um, so that's not that far. So what are our impediments to believing that visitation is a possible answer? Why can't we believe that? Um, I don't understand. I mean, I know why we used to not believe that. It just well, seemed crazy, right? I but guess why one, is it crazy now? I guess one impediment, and maybe it's not an impediment, but given that the universe is 15 billion years old, right. and humans, as let's say an industrial species, industrial being the key word here, it's only a few hundred years old. Right. Um, it seems like uh, civilizations have to line up pretty closely, and right. the odds of that are are against us. So, like, either someone so far advanced, we'd never, no one would crash, we'd never right. detect anything, or a civilization's not advanced at all and not human-like at all and would have nothing to do with us. Absolutely, and I think that that's true, but then you start getting into these numbers. You know, the, the, the universe is, what, huge, right? Almost infinite. So, yes, that's the majority of the cases, but there's so many possibilities. Mm -hmm. So if there's millions and billions and billions and billions of stars, there are millions of civilizations, if not billions of civilizations. So, yeah, it, it's going to take one in a billion for one of them to line up. But we can get to one in a billion with this math, right? Mm. So that's the question. Yeah, you're right. It's it's infinitesimally small possibility, but there's an infinite or nearly infinite uh, number of variables to pull into that. You know, I'm not a mathematician, and I'm not going to do the math, but I do believe that the impediments to, to, to this are not as vast as they used to be. And as we continue forward, we're getting closer and closer to discovering that life outside of us. And yeah, the things we're going to first see are going to be not lined up. 
But the idea that it's not possible is simply not true. And also, when you get into these vast distances, that's going to change dramatically. And the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is trying to figure out how to bend space. And then you start playing with time itself. And time is something that people don't understand that well, but it's not necessarily linear. It's not necessarily what we think of it as, the idea of different dimensions. And I know I'm getting into sci-fi here, no, no, but the reality but, but is there's so many he, possibilities. I mean, James Glake just wrote a book, uh, <laughs> History of Time Travel, so right. it's definitely like kind of in the zeitgeist, in the zeitgeist to explore this. So going back to Roswell, we look at Roswell, what's the most likely thing? An experiment of some sort. But then why can't they release it? Why isn't this information coming out? What if, and this is what I really think, they just don't know what it is. I think this is unidentified debris covered in weird hieroglyphics. If I were the Air Force, I probably wouldn't release that either. I would say, okay, in the 50s, they did a study, 60s, and they said, what would happen in America if we announced tomorrow that UFOs are real? And the response was, it would be complete chaos. People would stop going to work. Religions would fail. I think we've changed since then. Today, so much weirdness is going on. I mean, look at our political election. <laughs> that You wouldn't even be phased. If a flying saucer landed, it wouldn't even be the craziest thing in the newspaper that day, right? It would be one of them. Um, so, so we have changed as a people, and I think right now we would be accepting of life on other planets, and we would be accepting that someone crashed here in the 40s. Would that be that big a deal to you? Probably not, but in the 50s, it was a big deal. And so I think that's why they originally keep it secret. Now, do you think a guy like, like Chuck, who you covered... Uh, so deeply, do you think he's reluctant to look at, even though he, you portray him as somewhat skeptical, mm -hmm. do you think he's reluctant to look at other explanations for the things he's exploring? So he, his biggest thing was to, to look at all these um, cattle and animal mutilations. Right. So Yes. I think Chuck's main problem, and you know, he's a believer. He's someone who was a reformed skeptic, he calls himself. But the reality is, Chuck is a deep believer. He's someone who is always trying to prove the existence of UFOs. You know, his wife's not a believer. She's a skeptic. She thinks he's crazy. And he's um, not only into UFOs. I mean, he's into everything. Ghosts, Ghosts everything. cattle mutilation, Bigfoot. That's the problem in this community, is when you start to interview people and they can sound very rational when they're talking about UFOs, they suddenly are going off into everything. I think there are people who believe too much and people who believe too little. There's got to be this happy medium somewhere in there. Um, Chuck, you know, is an absolute believer. He looks at a cattle mutilation and he's ruling out things. That's his goal to get to it's got to be ETs, right? But um, like, for instance, um, uh -huh. the surgical... So so right. if you look at these cattle mutilations, there's a couple of unusual things. And this is what Chuck talks right. about in, in the book. Um, one is there's no blood anywhere. So you'd expect... Uh, so the, and, and all... And, their their sex organs are gone, right. kidneys are gone, like major organs are are disappeared, and you and they're 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 cut open. You would expect po large pools of blood because right. these are huge. And animals. you would expect if this was an animal doing it, you would expect torn cuts. You wouldn't expect surgical looking cuts, um, things like that. And so Chuck's immediately starting to think. Well, the FBI, for instance, when they did their investigation, and and there was a Freedom of Information Act, you can get their files, which I have, um, which are easy to get. Um, they had four theories. One of them was that it was some mass cult. Um, it'd have to extend 50 years, involve lots of sophisticated people. They had and, no and proof never, to that. And never anybody admitted. No one ever any, getting caught yeah. or admit. The other idea was a biker gang because a biker in prison came forward and said his biker gang was doing this across states. But this putting, is 10,000 of them. Right. And so it seemed unlikely as well. Um, some sort of bio-experimentation, either by a private company or some military organization that for some reason was was checking for radiation levels, was pulling organs out, and then left the carcasses there. They disguised themselves using the UFO thing. Um, and then the fourth idea was UFOs. And the FBI had no idea what the answer was. Of course, they didn't pick the UFO answer, but they didn't come to a conclusion. Okay, let me let me ask, though, so the, the simple solution right. is um, 
predators, predatory animals hit the cattle. Right. And then they're there for a few days before they're discovered, you know, these big ranches. But they're and, discovered the next, I mean, there's majority of them are discovered the next morning. So uh, is that too soon for them to be eaten up by, um, you know, flies or buzzards well, or whatever? Well, you know, whatever? it's different, different cases. But if a predator was doing this over and over again, 10,000 times, um, you would think that, first of all, the draining of the blood is bizarre. But but insects could could drink the blood. Well, okay, if there was a big, big time difference, mm-hmm. you're right. Um, the cuts themselves are very are, and, and, and Chuck brings the carcasses to veterinary specialists at the University of Colorado who say, you know, this is not uh, bite marks. Um, these cuts are surgical okay, for the but, most part. Not all bloatation of them. from, let's say, the blood pooling after right. the death yeah. could create could could create. Ex- and this is all you know stuff that was in the FBI mm-hmm. documentation. Is this a possibility? And in some cases, it probably is, but not in all the cases. There's definitely ones animals look like they've been dropped from heights. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they're on a certain side all the time, they're always on their left side. Always, um, almost always, in majority of these cases, that's how you find them. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you're right. There could be, uh, some of these things can be described that way. Um, but the majority of them, I do not believe can be. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think it's, you know, the cuts themselves when you see them, I mean, the tongues are, are sliced very far back in almost all the cases with a straight cut. So the tongues are being removed and it seems unlikely that an animal would get into the mouth and get the tongue out like that in a straight cut. So what, what, what's even the UFO explanation? Well, that, like? that's a great question, too, and Chuck doesn't know. He thinks it has something to do with experimentation. The same abduction phenomenon that people see going on um, is similar with the cows, that they're studying something. Um, uh, you know, bovine blood and human blood are not that far apart. Maybe that's something to do with that, and that's why taking the blood. And uh, I don't know. I don't think that the UFO answer is a good answer for cattle mutilation either. I think that's a very uh, out-there answer. And uh, and I think it's very hard to sort of figure out why, in advance, species presumably would be so interested in cattle. Um, so so, like, so I don't buy that either. I'm not a big believer in the UFO animal mutilation phenomenon. I think the animal mutilation phenomenon is its own phenomenon that I don't know the answer to, um, and it's related to something. And I'm not saying they're all that. I'm sure there are copycats. I'm sure there are ones where a predator did it and then it's immediately just lumped in with the other animal mutilations. Um, but I do think there's a large number of them that have something to do with one of these weird explanations. So, so you know, fitting this in with kind of like your your oeuvre of, of books, right. you know, it's like you take this super high-stakes situation, like a bunch of kids winning, you know, millions and millions of dollars <laughs> right. at MIT or a bunch of other kids making billions and billions of dollars out of a dorm room. And here's a, a high-stakes situation are there, you know, alien civilizations and UFOs or other mysteries doing these incredible things? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, on you know, on our planet, like right. like killing tens of thousands of cows, or you know, crash landing in Roswell, or right. any of these other things. Like like what other things occurred during the the research for this book that struck you as unusual? Yeah. So basically, you know, I wanted this book to be a travelogue into the UFO phenomenon. As someone not in that world, it's following Chuck from site to site as he kind of delves down that rabbit hole, trying to convince his family that it's all real. Um, I, I think that when you look at the 37th parallel, and that's sort of Chuck's big thesis, is that running across the country is this line, uh, the 37th parallel, where a lot of these things take place. And it's also where a lot of our underground military bases are. Um, so you have, you know, the Pentagon, Area 51, Cheyenne Mountain, um, all of these things 
occur along the 37th parallel. Chuck is investigating it, and he starts to notice that people are sort of following him, investigating along the way. And this is where we get into the real... And is that real, or is yeah, that paranoia? So this is really interesting. So there is a company, uh, Bigelow Aerospace. Um, they are a, an aerospace company that makes pieces for the International Space Station. Um, they make the Transhab, which is that inflatable uh, room that just went up with the SpaceX, two SpaceX launches ago, that they did an, a, a spacewalk, and they inflated it. Um, and an astronaut went in and out of it. Um, he's a billionaire, uh, made his money originally in Budget Suites of America. He has been funding UFO research for 30 years. Um, he created something called the National Institute of Discovery Science back in the uh, 90s that, that had he brought together real scientists to attempt to find the smoking gun to prove that UFOs exist. Since then, his company has gone secretive about this stuff, but has been secretly investigating UFOs for 20, 30 years. Um, the FAA, which all of our pilots are members of, in their manual, if you look at their manual, if a pilot sees something, they don't report it to the U.S. government, they don't report it to the FAA, they report it to Bigelow. Hmm. Um, Why he is has, that? He has taken over what our government used to do, which was Project Blue Book. Our government used to investigate UFOs. Now, it's private. Bigelow Aerospace, well, Bigelow, um, and he has a separate company, which is a laboratory, B-A-A-S-S, they are the foremost investigator of UFOs, partnered with the FAA. He works with NASA. Um, his company is, you know, he has $500 million put into his company. And he sends teams around. So, for instance, MUFON. MUFON is the grassroots uh, national organization where people volunteer to look into UFOs. It's the biggest UFO organization in the country. They were funded by Bigelow. He used to run their Star Team program, which was a program for their top uh, exper uh, um, um, investigators, if someone had contact, supposedly, they would send out a, a star team. Turns out when the star team would get there, Bigelow's team would already be there. Hmm. Bigelow is the man in black. He has well-outfitted, well-funded investigators who essentially investigate uh, valid UFO sightings across our country. This was the thing that I found that blew my mind. Nobody knows anything about this. You know, you pick up the FAA manual, you're not expecting to see what are pilots supposed to do when they, you would assume they report it to the FAA, right? But they can't because if a pilot reports something to their own Air Force, their own um, American Airlines, they'll get fired. You know, even if they saw something. If, if, if I was a I guess, pilot and I said, I just saw a flying saucer fly by my plane, guess what? I just lost my job. Is this so, because nobody, everybody wants to have plausible deniability? This is the whole thing with the UFO community. Look at it. Chuck loses his job as a sheriff for mentioning UFOs. No re respectable scientist can look into the UFO phenomenon without potentially losing their credibility or their job. No uh, uh, journalist can write a serious article about UFOs without being mocked. Every interview I ever did for this book, you have X-Files music playing in the background. Nobody can take it seriously. I promise we will not have X-Files. I like the X-Files. I love it. <laughs> um, but a pilot can't report something they see. People in the military can't report it. You know, if an officer was out on the field and saw a flying saucer and reported it up the chain of command, that officer will lose his job, mm. right? So this is an interesting thing. If there were something going on, Nobody can legitimately look at it without risking themselves. And this was started in the 50s on purpose by the Air Force. The Air Force used to send out, whenever there was a UFO sighting in the 50s, they would send an officer out to the UFO symposiums to mock it, to make fun of it. Um, and they did this purposefully 
because they knew that once you create this aura of mocking, it'll never go away. No one can take it. In the 40s with the Foo Fighter phenomenon, it was taken seriously. Those were serious articles talking, we should investigate this, this is important. Then you have Roswell, and then suddenly the, all of those articles are mocking. All of the information is no longer serious. Um, and we get to today where 100 people in a town can see something, right? It makes the local news, and that's the end of it. If 100 people saw a murder, I guarantee you there would be follow-up, right? 100 witnesses is enough to convict someone of murder. But 100 witnesses of a flying saucer won't even get an investigation. Now, that's weird, right? And why do you, why do you think that is? Not even by... It's this aura of mocking. It's this aura of disbelief. It's impossible. It's a joke. And listen, 99.9% of those things are an errant missile, an Air Force project, a trick of the light. But why aren't they looked at? Right. Why isn't there a government organization? There is an organization. It's a private aerospace company. That's the only people who look into this. And Doesn't did you, that blow did you your try mind? to interview uh, Bigelow? I got deep inside Bigelow. So I had a source, a major source, very high up in the company, who has since uh, disappeared, I guess is the correct word, um, who, who gave me so much wonderful information. Um, Bigelow is a good guy, not a bad guy. He wears the white hat. He really is trying to prove something that he believes. He can't talk about it publicly because he has this major aerospace company doing things with NASA. I got, you know, I had many requests for interviews. I was talking to his, his uh, Blair Bigelow, I believe his daughter, when my source left the company. Um, uh, and they said, maybe he'll do an interview. Maybe we can sit down with you. And this was very much like the Mark Zuckerberg thing. In the end, they choose not to. I did the same thing with Zuckerberg. I spent a year trying to get Zuckerberg to talk to me. I got, I was able to send him questions. Sean was trying to broker a meeting between me because Sean and I got along very well. Um, and in the end, Mark just said no. Um, and that's what Robert Bigelow decided to do. And that's his right. He doesn't want to talk about this, but he's very much a UFO enthusiast. I don't think he's a bad guy. There are people in the UFO community who think he is the shadow government, that he's bad guy, that he's reverse engineering alien tech, and that's how he's making his trans hab. I don't buy any of that. He's not reverse alien. But I do believe he believes, and I believe he has thousands of files that get us very close to that smoking gun. I don't think he has the smoking gun yet, and uh, but I do think that's his goal, is to be able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is real. Uh, he believes it's real. So I guess a lot of it also leads to the question of, is it special to be human, to be homo sapien? Right. In the sense that, are these aliens or whoever, let's say, let's say there are, assume for a second there are aliens and these are UFO experiences, are they doing something kind of communicating with us or right. observing us or they don't even know where, like, right. the rulers of the planet. <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. Now, uh, my own personal theory, and this has nothing to do with anything. So right now, we're working on a, a program called the Starshot Program. Have you heard of this program? No. There's a Russian billionaire and some very big scientists. The goal is to take thousands of postcard-sized probes that are pushed by lasers. They can reach one-fifth the speed of, of light. Mm. Um, we're going to shoot them off in random directions, and they're going to send back information. This is a real program going on there about... They say they're 15 years away from it actually working, but they've got all the science down. There's no impediments to actually doing it. Um, and they're going to shoot them off in random directions, and they're just going to travel forever. And they're going to reach very vast distances. They're going to reach Proxima Centauri, and that's where they're aiming uh, a bunch of them in 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, so what if there was some alien civilization that did something similar? Shot off probes, random directions, um, and one of those probes crashed in the 40s. I don't think that that's that far-fetched. We're going to do it. Our probes are going to crash all over the place. 
Who knows if one of them is going to crash into a planet that has alien life on it? Um, and to us, you know, it would look like something exploded, left debris all over the place, and that was it. I don't think it's a necessary thing where there's this continuous contact. Um, I mean, that's what some people believe. I don't think there's aliens, you know, little gray men. They're not green. They're gray running around. All the oh, yeah. So what do you seeing. think of that? Of that well, I mean, the listen, grays. people have very real experiences. You talk to people and they really are traumatized by what they saw. They truly believe. Um, and so that is interesting. And I don't discount it. I'm not willing to simply discount witness accounts, especially from very credible people. You have, you know, ex-Air Force people, you have ex-military people, you have people who are, are legitimate people who, who claim to have seen these things, right? Um, so I won't automatically discount it. However, I haven't seen any proof that has swayed me to believe that there are greys running around. Um, so for me, I can't make that jump. Um, but I'm certainly willing to believe that these people are traumatized by whatever they saw, um, and they believe they saw it. But no, I don't, I, I don't have any evidence or, or... Listen, when people ask me, do I believe? This is all I believe. I believe that it is not impossible that something crashed in the 40s at Roswell. I do believe there was a cover-up. I do believe the U.S. government has that debris and that it is unidentified and they won't release it. Those are the things that I believe. And you put those together and you say, well, there's something really to look at. I and, do believe, and you believe there's mystery around the mutilation. I believe there's a mystery around the mutilation that hasn't been solved. I can't tell you what it is, what the answer is. And I also believe firmly that there should be an organization investigating UFO sightings. There should be a governmental, serious organization, not some private company that doesn't release its files, because that exists. There is a private company doing this. Why isn't there a government organization? If there was any other phenomenon we're talking about, there would be a government organization looking at it. But why isn't there someone to call when you see a flying saucer? So so the book's very interesting because you interweave, obviously, the, the history of kind of UFOlogy right. with Chuck's story and his own personal um, quest to find some evidence along with his, you know, his kind of this brother-sister relationship as well because right. she's also a UFO ufologist. She's one of the heads of MUFON. She's a director of their... And which know, was like a coincidence. <clears throat> like they didn't even realize didn't at realize first they, they were, were both, both interested in it. Right. And so so what were your... Um, you know, this this is sort of a different type of story in that there's not like the cleanest resolution. It's not right. like they suddenly take off like at Close Encounters of the Third Kind and they take off on an alien spaceship. Right. And I don't want to give away the ending because a lot of people have been both pissed about it and interested in it. Uh, it's the, a very the, interesting ending. It does lead to a lot of questions. One. It leads to a lot of questions and some anger on the internet. Um, <laughs> some anger on my Amazon reviews. <laughs> I will say that I wanted to leave it open-ended in some extent because it is an open-ended. There's no answer. There's no little green man yet. There's no flying saucer crashing on this White House lawn yet. But I do believe we are leading in that direction. I think we're getting closer and closer to a resolution to this. I think the Hillary Clinton thing, but that's not the only thing. Um, the Catholic Church recently put out an edict saying alien life would not be contradictory to Catholic doctrine. Mm -hmm. It was a weird thing for them to say, out of the blue. Why are they even mentioning this right now? Um, and I feel like that's and, part and of why, this. Why wouldn't it be contradictory? Is well, it of course. <laughs> you know, I love how religion. I don't want to. You know, I know there are people who are religious out there. Uh, it's funny to watch religion attempt to adapt to all of the things that we discover. Everything just has to somehow fit in to something that was created during the Bronze Age when Australia didn't exist. Um, right. You know, it's like you have to find a way. Okay, alien life. Well, that works fine. <laughs> you know, Jesus loved aliens too. Uh, I mean, they're gonna try and you know gymnastics to. to you know, figure out a way 
that when we discover right. alien life, that it also works. Um, so the Catholic Church put that out, and it was an odd thing to me for them to put that out, unless they felt like we're about to discover alien life and they want to cover their bases. Um, so I do think we're getting closer and closer. I feel like the zeitgeist has moved us in that direction. I also believe that um, things that were kept secret before are no longer kept secret. You know, WikiLeaks, all of these things. Information is coming out now faster and more furious than ever before. So if there is a file somewhere, there's no reason that it's going to stay secret for that much longer. We're getting closer and closer. I think it's going to be something very simple. I think it's going to be something crashed. We don't know what it is. Here's the, here's the debris. We've analyzed it backwards and forwards. It's got silicon. It's got aluminum in it. But it, it's not something that we know how it was manufactured. That's what I think the answer will be. And that's very simple. Um, and it leads to many more questions than it answers. Um, but that's what I think the information is. So, so um, you know, you mentioned you you sell a book with a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a movie being made on this? Yeah. So the movie is with uh, New Line Pictures. Uh, the Bo Flynn, who did San Andreas and has the upcoming Baywatch, is making the movie. Um, Robert Downey Jr.'s people are very interested um, for mm-hmm. him, which would be amazing um, to play Chuck. Uh, I think it's going to be a really cool movie. We're at the process now where we're trying to bring in the, the right screenwriter. Um, so why from, don't you write the screenplay? Uh, you know, it's funny Hollywood. Hollywood doesn't really ask the author to write the screenplay. Um, in fact, to get a movie made quickly, the author writing the screenplay is usually an impediment to that, which is sad. I would love to write screenplays as well, but uh, only when it's going to help the movie get made. I understand the business, and there have been some great authors who've done it and done it very successfully, like Lehane, like Gillian Flynn. Like People have done it very well, but usually the best route to a movie getting made is the author writes the book, an A-list screenwriter writes the screenplay, and then an A-list actor attaches, an A-list director attaches, and you make the movie. If any of those elements aren't set up correctly, it slows the process down. Because essentially, when an author writes his own screenplay, um, nobody's ass is covered. <laughs> this, is, this is what I really think is going on. If you bring in an A-list screenwriter and an A-list director and an A-list producer, you can't get you're fired. off the hook. Right. <laughs> you know, you did your job. But if you let the author write the screenplay and the movie doesn't do well, you screwed up. And so I feel like that's the thinking. Um, and because I sell my movies to studios, you know, I don't sell independent, you know, I don't do independent movies. I try and do big studio movies. You really have to have all of those elements to get that movie out there. Um, so for me, I'm willing to sit back and bring in a great writer. And I also enjoy watching another writer take the material and, and do something with it. I've been very lucky in that the two movies that have been made for my books have been very good. Um, so the writer's done a good job. I'm sure one day I'll have a real crappy movie made and then I'll not like the process as much. Um, but right now, I would love to write it. And if a studio came to me and said, we'd like you to write it, 100% I'd be in and I'd do it. But I'm not forcing myself in there um, to do it yet. Um, now, yeah. do you ever see yourself uh, running? I mean, we, we talked earlier about your yeah. idea for your next book, which is coming out as, as recently as as soon as next July. July, yeah. Do you, do you ever worry about running out of stuff to, <laughs> you know, to write I don't, about? I, I really, I, I don't worry about running out of it. You're always looking for that next bigger and bigger thing. So, you know, how much bigger can you get, right? <laughs> UFOs and the next project is, is even bigger. But eventually, you know, uh, it, it can be chum- I don't have a problem getting stories. People pitch me. I mean, I got 100 pitches this last week, Hmm. especially when I have a book come out. And they're not great, um, but through them, you sift through them, and every now and then you see one that's like, well, this is pretty interesting. Um, I remember Charlie Sheen pitched me back during the whole Charlie Sheen craziness, but my wife wouldn't let me hang out with him for a year to write his book. That's Um, funny. You know, I would get pitches like that all the time, and 
Now it's mostly, you know, UFO-related because I just wrote a book about UFOs. Um, what about, like, uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit of the WikiLeaks. Like, what about right. the whole... Well, I mean, kind of- at the time, I was pitched a Julian Assange story before there was one. I didn't like the story. Um, you know, for me, first of all, it has to be a story that hasn't already been destroyed by the news, you know, mm-hmm. covered to the extent that... And I'm not just a journalist who throws his hat into the ring. If there's a big story, I'm not going to chase it with everybody else. Um, I feel though there's like a darker, or not a darker, but deeper is, side to this, which I, is I just I I gloss over, and mm. I don't know if other people do, but whenever I I start hearing all about WikiLeaks, and I think it's fascinating, something in me just kind of turns off. I right. can't; it's too much. <laughs> I think I don't know what the answer is. Politics is another thing. I think I would love to write a politics book, but it would have to be so completely off the chart, different, um, with my own sort of uh, source that no one's really gotten into. Uh, it's just too much, and uh, I think WikiLeaks is that. It's such a big story with so many people and elements that's been written about so much. Um, what do you write that hasn't been written? And 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 how do you? And anyways, uh, you know, you have to have a likable main character. You know, you have to have a hero. You have to have someone people identify with at least, or at least understand. And I think that story is probably missing that. Well, so so. I read an interview with you recently where you mentioned, and here you are, you've written 18 books, you've yeah. ha- had several movies made, you have several movies under development, and you mentioned you're still kind of comparing yourself unfavorably to Michael Lewis. <laughs> oh, Michael Lewis. It's funny. So, uh, you know, so, so it doesn't matter. Brother, how, but, but it's my little brother's just, favorite author is Michael Lewis, and every time I've come out with a book, my brother reads it and calls me and goes, well, it's no Michael Lewis. <laughs> I will that's say. That's frustrating. All authors are, are competitive, you know. But, like, but, I like I think he's brilliant. I think he's an incredible writer and I read every one of his books but I'm always sort of feeling like I'm no Michael Lewis <laughs> so it's like it's it's got that it's got that uh, I don't know what it is what he can do and I think we're in a similar genre we're very similar although he's much more finance and he's much more of a, a journalist than I am um, and what I mean by that is he really digs into a story in a different way than I do. I take the main character and I follow our main character through the story. I tell our story through the eyes of our main character. Michael Lewis tells the story from every angle, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I think critically people will like that better to some extent. I'm aimed at an entertainment uh, way of writing the same. I would write the same books he writes, but I would write them differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but I think he's brilliant. I think he's a genius. But here's what I mean. You know, my books, I have a core audience and they do fine. Um, but you know, I don't. I haven't attained the Michael Lewis level of writing yet. Um, but it's I've so funny though that, that we always, no matter right. how successful we are, well, we yeah. always yeah. compare you, ourselves. You, you <laughs> compare yourself to somebody in the same industry who's just doing better. <laughs> no, I think he's great. He's awesome, and uh, and uh, I think you know he and I are, are are in similar places, but just doing it a little bit differently. Um, but yeah, I mean, all authors are kind of look at each other, especially we all have books come out at the same time, usually every year. We're all in similar patterns, I think. Um, and you and you know you 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 know how's how's he doing? How's he doing? But um, I think he's great. I think he's awesome. And I think you know, um, in terms of narrative nonfiction, you know, there's a few people who are just really amazing. Sebastian Younger is another one who I'm a bit in awe of him. Um, just as a person, I think he's awesome. <laughs> you know, he just he's like the guy who goes into the middle of Afghanistan to get a story and is in the foxhole and does things that I would never do. I mean, I'd be mm-hmm. terrified to be him for for a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a phenomenal writer out of it. And I think there are just some writers that I really look up to. Michael Crichton was the one I wanted to be. I wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson or Michael Crichton. Those are my two favorite authors. Um, I was obsessed with Hunter S. Thompson and then I was obsessed with Michael Crichton. And I'm trying to do that with my books. I'm trying to blend those two styles. Um, Hunter S. Thompson's gonzo journalism with Michael Crichton's 
pacing and and thriller writing. And that's always how I've seen myself as a mix of those two guys. Um, yeah, you know, they were like my my gods growing up as a writer, and so that's that's who I'm trying to be. But yeah, I don't know. I I I, I read as much as I can when I'm reading. Um, but um, you know, when I'm writing, I'm not reading. Um, so you know, writing. I've been in such a writing process for the past two three years that it's hard for me to sit down and read anything. Well, the thirty seventh parallel, I highly recommend it. It's definitely the most lucid book on a very non lucid topic. <laughs> Thank uh, you. The whole quest for you know alien life and searching for its proof and and so on. So I highly recommend it. Ben, once again, this is the second time you're on the podcast. I hope you come. Your your next book's coming out in July. We won't talk about it now, but we're sure. going to talk about it before then. So, I so can't I'm excited wait. for that. I thank you so much. I'm so glad to do this in person. I, yeah. I am a big fan of yours, so this is phenomenal for me to do. Thank you. Thank you. That's Thanks, fun. Ben. All right, great. That was awesome. Yeah, that was fun. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less. And it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.